you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis 12. We'll be looking at verses uh, 10 to 20 this morning. Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Have you ever uh, had it uh, where you were surprised to hear uh, what someone uh, sounds like? Uh, You see someone and you form a a certain impression about uh, what sound is going to come out of their mouth. Maybe it's the uh, guy who looks like he could uh, bench press a school bus with the children still in them. Uh, He's had a beard since he's 12 years old, eats his cereal with testosterone just shaking on it, right? And you've formed a certain impression of what's this guy going to sound like. And then he opens his mouth and it's just a little squeakier uh, than you were uh, anticipating. There's a clash of expectations uh, and reality and that can throw you off. Well, in one sense, uh, that's the experience that we're meant to have as we come to our text uh, this morning. We're likely to be thrown off a bit. Abram, a great father of the faith, speaks. But it's not what we are expecting. When Abram opens his mouth, we don't hear a courageous, faith-filled roar, but we hear the squeaky whimper of a man beset by fear and doubt and unbelief. Why? What, what are we supposed to uh, learn from this passage where we see this uh, father of the faith in such uh, an unflattering light? Well, as Christians, we're called, uh, uh, we know, to walk by faith, to live by faith, to stand firm in faith. Uh, but we can be unclear as to uh, what that looks like. Uh, there can be aspects of living as believers that surprise us and even uh, shock us at times. As a pastor, I've walked alongside people who have been uh, greatly disturbed by uh, doubts and by encountering uh, their own spiritual weakness and unbelief. Sometimes that disturbance is is so great even uh, that it leads uh, people to wonder, am I even a Christian at all? It seems to us at times that a true believer wouldn't struggle with unbelief as uh, these people in my counseling office do. That if they were truly Christians, they'd be less quick to forget God and less prone to fall into the sins that they're struggling with. 
And we wonder, how can I be a Christian if walking by faith is so hard, we think. If that's been you or that is you, God allows Abram to, speak, to squeak and to stumble in this passage to help you and to help us help others. Because we see two things happening in these verses that we're looking at this morning. First, in the faithlessness of Abram, we get a realistic picture of the Christian life and of our own hearts. And this should keep us from despair, but it also should keep us from complacency. And second, in the faithfulness of God, we see a wonderful picture of divine grace for weak sinners. And by this, God intends to strengthen us in faith by showing us his commitment to keep his promises. And so if you're a note taker, our outline this morning is simple. We'll consider first a fearful father, and then a threatened promise, and then a gracious God. A fearful father, a threatened promise, and a gracious God. And so let's dive into our text together this morning. Our, our passage is the second installment uh, in Genesis's account of Abram's uh, life. In the first installment, we're introduced to Abram. We're told how God has called Abram, this idolater from Ur, uh, out uh, from Ur, and he's called him uh, to the promised land. And he said to Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. In Abram, God was establishing a river of grace that would flow down through human history and then out to the world. And God reveals his purposes in the first part of Genesis 12 by speaking audibly to Abram in verse 1. Later, he appears to Abram uh, visibly in a theophany in verse 7. And in these two encounters, God issues two major promises to Abram. He promises to give him offspring and a land. And while there's immense obstacles uh, in the way, seemingly, Abram believes God. He trusts God to do as he says. And so God says, go, and Abram goes. Uh, God says, I'm going to give you this land, and Abram uh, builds an altar. And he worships. Now, if I were to say to you right now that straight up you could trade the quality of your faith for Abram's, I suspect that most of us would take that trade. I know uh, that I would. We think of Abram as an example of faith that we aspire to. It's for good reason. The Bible, uh, of course, treats Abram as a, a, a pillar of faith, an example of faith. If there was a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament saints, Abram's face would unquestionably be on that mountain. In Hebrews 11, sometimes called the, the Hall of Faith, Abraham is, uh, uh, gets more ink than anyone else in that chapter. In James 12, Abram's called a friend of God. In uh, Romans 4, uh, we're told that Abram is the father of those who believe. And so with this understanding of who Abram is, our text should surprise us. A famine has caused Abram and his family to travel from Canaan to Egypt. Uh, Canaan, uh, where Abram had been, was a land that was particularly susceptible to uh, drought and famine because it relied on the seasonal rains in order to, to grow things. And so if the rains didn't come as, as expected, uh, then famine came. And Abram was in a, a tough Situation. He was a migrant. Uh, he was living in a foreign land, living among the fortified cities of Canaan. Uh, he shouldn't expect that he would get a handout or a helping hand uh, from any of the people who were living around him. So in search of food, Abram travels down to Egypt. 
Uh, Egypt with the Nile River uh, was buffered from the effects of a drought and famine. And as Abram's caravan travels down to Egypt, he suddenly senses a problem. Evidently, it's not a problem that had occurred to Abram before, but it occurs to him now. He thinks to himself, uh-oh, my wife is gorgeous. And it's an interesting problem to have. Though Sarai is about 65 years old at this point, both Abram and the princes of Egypt praise Sarai as being this woman of great physical beauty. Now, it's a little bit of an aside, but I would note that commentators have puzzled uh, over this uh, secret of Sarai's beauty. Some explain Sarai's beauty by saying that there were different cultural expectations that might be uh, at play here. Uh, Others have have supposed that maybe God caused uh, Abram and Sarai and the patriarchs uh, to age a little bit differently at, at that time. Uh, John Calvin, normally a reliable interpreter of scripture, said uh, that Sarai's beauty had been strangely preserved because she had not yet had children. It seems a bit of a stretch to me. Uh, We don't know exactly, though, how Sarai preserved her beauty. We just know that she was beautiful. And while having a gorgeous wife would not normally seem to be a problem, it was a problem in Abram's mind. He feared that the Egyptians would bump him off so that they could get to Sarai. And so, the first words that we have recorded in sacred scripture of Father Abraham, this father of the faith, are words that are filled with fear and self-concern and doubt. Verse 11 and 12, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Not what we'd expect to come forth from Abram's mouth. Fear grips Abram's heart, and how he responds to that fear is significant. I don't think Abram's fear in and of itself was sinful, but it leads him to sin. We see in verse 13, he continues speaking, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abram conspires with Sarah to misrepresent their relationship. To put it bluntly, he and Sarai agree that she's going to lie. Now, it wasn't an outright lie. Genesis 20 tells us that Sarai was Abram's half-sister, something I'm not going to get into this morning. They shared a father, but not a mother, and so it wasn't entirely made up. Yet Abram's purpose in misrepresenting the truth here, uh, or he's purposely misrepresenting the truth here, and this is sin. Our Westminster Larger Catechism makes this point in its explanation of the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment says that we shouldn't bear false testimony. And according to the larger catechism, when God forbids false testimony, this includes, the catechism says, speaking in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Johannes Voss, commenting on this, explains, intentionally to use expressions that can be understood in two different ways in order to deceive some other person is just as wicked as telling an outright lie. The real essential nature of a lie is the intention to deceive some person, even though what we might say might be itself true, if our intention is to deceive others, we are really liars in God's sight. So let's get very practical for a moment. Boys and girls, maybe you've had it before where you've done something that's uh, hurt your your sibling. Maybe you've pushed them off uh, the couch and they start to cry and your parents come rushing in and, and they say, of course, what happened? 
and you say he fell off the couch and he got hurt. Now, yes, it's true. Your brother or sister did fall off the couch, but what you know and what you're not telling is that he fell off the couch because you assisted him in a particular way, right? You pushed him. And when we do this, we're lying and sinning against God. Well, in a similar way, Abram said something true, but it wasn't the full truth which he was called to give at this point. He spoke to deceive, and to do this in God's judgment is sin. So Abram's in a hard situation. He's afraid. He reacts to his fear by engaging in sinful deception. But what we need to know is what underlies the circumstance and the feeling and the response. I want us to see Abram's functional unbelief. Notice that as he encounters a challenging circumstance and the strong feelings within him, God is nowhere in view for Abram. There's no mention of of Abram remembering God or praying to God as he did earlier. There's no recollection of God's uh, promises to bless Abram. God doesn't show up at all in verses 10 to 16. This is a, a glaring omission. Now what we have instead is this father of the faith, this great patriarch, and he's gripped by fear and he forgets that God is in the picture at all. And as a result, forgetting God, he takes matters into his own hands. He, he tries to protect himself uh, by lying, by covering up uh, the truth. And in an act of cowardice, he uses his wife to protect his own skin. So when Abram cropped God out of the picture, it, uh, it led to a whole cluster of sins. Now, there's two things that I want us to see from Abram's shocking example here. First... This snapshot of Abram gives us a realistic picture of the Christian life. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're exempt from uh, moments of doubt or unbelief or even great sin. Abram's just one example, of course, of several in Scripture. In believing Abram, we see that faith is often mixed with unbelief, even in the greatest of saints. I think it's important for us to be realistic about what the life of faith looks like this side of Christ's return. If you're a Christian, God has has pulled you out of dead unbelief, and yet you're living in the period where we're not yet fully free from sin. Sin doesn't uh, dominate us as it once did, but it still deceives us. And while we wait for Jesus uh, to return, we're no longer ruled by sin, but we're still beset by it. And this means that true Christians, true Christians at times will be beset with unbelief and the sins that accompany it. Unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians can have the impression that because our faith falters, it's not true faith. And if we don't possess true faith, then maybe we're not truly converted. And if not truly converted, then not truly saved and and not a child of God. I wonder, dear Christian, is that how you think? Well, it's, it's true that apart from true faith, no one will be saved, it's not true that a faltering faith is no faith at all. Brother or sister, especially if you're someone here this morning who has struggled with periods of doubt or unbelief, or maybe that's you here this morning, I want you to consider the example of Abram. Now, while I'm not commending his unbelief, I want you to realize that even great Christians here and now are prone to fickleness. 
Maybe you have come home from a missions trip or a Christian conference, and you've found yourself there. You've been challenged. uh, You've been encouraged. You come back. You're filled with zeal, great confidence in God. You're committed to walking in obedience. uh, From uh, uh, you want to turn from sin. You you want to serve God. But then only a week later, you find yourself back into an old sin pattern. And you wonder, how can this be? What is wrong with me? Or maybe there's the person who's moved to tears on Sunday because they hear the gospel preached and and they, they believe deeply what Christ has done for them. But then that same heart is gripped by fear and a, a need to control others and And God is not a functioning presence in their relationships on Monday. What's going on? Our text helps us and helps believers to be realistic that our faith is often mixed with unbelief. Yet it won't support complacency about that unbelief. Yes, that might be our experience, but it's also an experience that our text encourages us to be on guard against. And that's the second point I want to make here under this heading. We want to be on guard against unbelief, uh, knowing that it often challenges us as God's people. Our passage isn't ambivalent or neutral about Abram's unbelief. It doesn't shrug its shoulders and say, well, that's just how it is sometimes. Abram's functional unbelief and his sinful response as a result are eventually scolded by pagan unbelieving Pharaoh. And so we need to ask ourselves, where is their functional unbelief at work in my life? Abram's uh, unbelief wasn't manifested in him denying God's existence or uh, wrestling intellectually with the problem of evil, although uh, Christians uh, can do that. Abram's unbelief is shown by God being cropped out of the picture. He doesn't uh, engage with his circumstances, with, with God being there in the picture as a functional reality. For us, this may mean that we look at a strained relationship, but we don't stop to think What would be different about this situation if I saw God as the one who was ruling and reigning uh, over all things and and who's present here in this relationship? Being on guard against unbelief means asking something like, how would I go into this meeting at work differently? If I was convinced from my head to my toes that the all-present, everlasting God has gone before me into this meeting, or if God's character and his promises are, are true and, and, and if those are functioning realities in my life and they're the lens through which I'm looking at the world, could I then be honest with someone I trust about my sin? Why don't you just think, God had spoken audibly to Abram. He appeared to Abram visibly. He had made promises directly to Abram. So if Abram's heart could be infected With unbelief, how much more vigilant should you and I be? Well, as serious a matter as Abram's functional unbelief is, it's made more serious by who he is and what he has received. Abram's been called to play a special part in God's plan of redemption. Abram was the beachhead of God's covenant of grace. God was going to bless the families of the world through Abraham, a world that was under the curse of sin. Uh, Abram was the key figure in this. And as a result, he had promised Abram offspring, and he had promised Abram land, as I had said, land and children. Very important. 
Because notice how these promises are no sooner made than with big red ink, a giant question mark is drawn over each one of them. God had promised Abram a land. Specifically, God had promised him that he would give the land of Canaan to Abram's descendants. And Abram is settling in the land, but then famine strikes. And Abram leaves Canaan for Egypt. He's removed from the land. What's going to happen to this land promise? But God also promised Abram children. And Abram's experience in, in Egypt causes a warning light to appear on this promise also. Abram schemes that he can pass off Sarah as his sister. Maybe he's thinking, well, if she's my sister and someone's interested in her, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll negotiate and stall over a bride price, as was customary in that time. But things don't work out the way Abram planned, because he can't negotiate with Pharaoh. They see her, members of the royal household. They think she's beautiful. They bring her to Pharaoh. She's not brought to Pharaoh for a tea and a chat, we need to be clear, but she was brought to Pharaoh to become one of his wives. Now, there are several problems with this. Abram's cowardice and reneging on his duties as a husband, a Pharaoh's unwitting adultery. But at the heart of the matter is that Abram not only forgets God's promise of offspring, but he seemingly endangers it. If Abram was going to have children, Sarai, it would seem, is a necessary part of the equation. But now she's with Pharaoh. What happens if she has Pharaoh's child? Or if she stays in Pharaoh's house indefinitely? See, this isn't just a story about Abram and Sarah. This is a story about God's promises. Promises which God has made. Promises which Abram forgot. And promises which, from one perspective, seem threatened. I want you to consider how different the Bible would be if the story ended with Sarai living out her days in Pharaoh's palace and with Abram living as a confirmed bachelor with his uh, flocks growing and his herds outside Pharaoh's palace and with the promises of God growing old and expiring in Egypt along with childless Abram and Sarai and with God's covenant of grace drying up as quickly as it started. No offspring, no redeemer, no salvation, no grace or blessing for the world. And if faltering Abram is left to his own unbelief, that's exactly what would happen. But Abram's not left to his own unbelief. Abram's faith, faithlessness is met by the faithfulness of a gracious God. And that's our third point, a gracious God. Now, there's two contrasts that I want you to see in verses 16 to 20. The first contrast is between Abram and Pharaoh. Abram is God's uh, chosen vessel for bringing blessings uh, to the world. He's a man of faith, yet in this story his unbelief is on full display. He's faithless, fickle, false, cowardly, dishonorable. Contrast this with the conduct of Pharaoh. Though Pharaoh is, is duped by Abram and he's led into unintentional sin, the pagan Pharaoh's conduct shines, it sparkles, compared with Abram's. When Abram's deceit is uh, uncovered, Pharaoh's flabbergasted. He's befuddled. He says, how can you do this? Right? How could you lie to me in this way? The interaction between Pharaoh and Abram is just one more way the story shines a light on Abram's weakness. Here's a pagan who's putting Abram to shame with his conduct that is more righteous than Abram. 
Now, it's not just Abram, of course. Sadly, there have been many occasions where the behavior of us in the church has been put to shame by those who are outside our walls. But the focus here is to look at Abram, the man, in his weakness. The difference between believing Abram and pagan Pharaoh is not that Abram was a better man than Pharaoh. At least on this occasion, he wasn't. The difference is that Abram was a recipient of God's grace. And this, this grace is displayed in a second contrast, a contrast between God and Abram. Abram was, was faithless. Uh, he had forgotten God's promises. As wonderful uh, as those promises were, they seemed to fade into the background for Abram when trouble comes. God, however, has not forgotten his promises. He's committed to his promises despite Abram's own sin and unbelief. And we see the first hint at God's faithfulness actually in verse 16. Pharaoh deals well with Abram because of Sarai. And I think there's some irony here. God works through Abram's faithless scheming to keep his promises to Abram. Back in verse 2, God had said to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And we see God adding to Abram's wealth as he causes Pharaoh to give Abram uh, animals and, and servants. That's just one way that God is keeping his promise. Another way is when God makes his, his presence felt more sharply in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God had also said back in verse 3, Whoever dishonors you, Abram, I will curse. And here, despite the situation being Abram's own doing, God is true to his promises. He afflicts Pharaoh and the royal house with terrible plagues. God acts to secure the promises that Abram's faithlessness had seemingly imperiled. Because of the plagues, Pharaoh uh, releases Sarai to Abram. He sends Abram along with all the wealth that Abram had gathered. He sends them and they go back to the promised land. And so we see those threatened promises are now back on the table of, of offspring and land. Abram's unbelief was displayed in his forgetting God's promises. God's grace is displayed in his keeping his promises by delivering Abram out of Egypt. In fact, this is a pattern we find throughout the scriptures that points to God's grace. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might notice that Abram's story sounds a lot like another Egyptian escape. Abram's experience individually anticipates Israel's experience nationally. In the Exodus, think, right? A people goes down to Egypt because of famine. The males are in danger. God sends terrible plagues to release his people. The people plunder the Egyptians who they're living among. And God brings his people out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. Abram's story here is like a mini Exodus, a personal Exodus, which is the defining redemptive act in the Old Testament. Abram's exodus, like Israel's exodus, points us to a God who does not forget his promises, who does not forget his saving purposes, who does not forget his people. And this exodus pattern, these deliverances are a pattern that run through the very heart of Scripture because it's a pattern of grace that finds its fulfillment in the life and death of Jesus Christ. By his death and resurrection, Jesus takes his people out of the domain of sin and death, and he leads his people into the realm of God's salvation blessings 
and into his eternal rest. He's leading his people into the new heavens and the new earth. And he does this as we're united to him by faith. It's not necessarily a perfect faith or a spotless faith or a large faith, but it's a genuine faith that joins us to him. Trusting that God will do as he's promised in his son. Joined to Jesus, we're delivered with Jesus. So three acts of deliverance. And in each case, God's work of exodus, of his bringing out, each act shows his commitment to his gracious promises. For with Abram, with Israel, with us, God acts despite our weakness and unbelief because he is 100% committed to his gracious purposes. God's deliverance of faithless, forgetful Abram shows his faithfulness is greater than our weakness. And so I think it's important for us to take away one more thing from this story. It's that as we see the, uh, God's gracious character and as we see his faithfulness to his promises, we're not just warned about our propensity to unbelief, but we're also strengthened against it. Our, our functional unbelief displays itself by forgetting God and forgetting what God has promised. And one of the ways that we're strengthened against that type of unbelief is by having the reality of those promises pressed in against our lived experience. To have the promises of God anchored in reality. It's one thing, right, to have a promise, but that promise becomes more concrete, more real. It becomes bigger in our experience when it's demonstrated in action. In his book, A Resilient Life, Gordon MacDonald tells a story that may have echoes in your own experience. You may have been on the giving end or the receiving end of such an experience. Uh, MacDonald recounts that many years ago, when he was a track star in high school, uh, he and his friends made plans to meet up with their girlfriends uh, after a meet. And their girlfriends were in Long Island, uh, which was some distance away. And they were permitted to go on the condition that they'd be back in their dorms uh, by the midnight curfew. And to do that, they had to catch a 10.30 train. And if they broke curfew, the boys knew that they would be in danger of um, not graduating later that month. Well, the dates were great, the boys reported, but their sense of timing was not so much. They missed the last train from Long Island. And in a panic, they thought, what could we do? Uh, it was too long to walk. There were no more trains. It was too expensive to take a taxi. And it was their fault. So with great reluctance, they uh, find a payphone, they pick it up, they call their now sleeping coach, Coach Goldberg. And without complaint, Coach Goldberg woke up and he made the hour-long drive to pick up the boys. And in this late-night rescue, the boys came to see Coach Goldberg's commitment to them in a bigger, more tangible way. Goldberg's rescue showed that the relationship between the coach and his runners wasn't just talk, it was a relationship with substance to it. It was an act of grace that, would, that anchored in reality Coach Goldberg's commitment to these boys. It's a commitment he had expressed before, but this gracious rescue made that commitment more clear and harder to forget. And it's grace like that, only infinitely better, that's on display in Abram's story. And because of Jesus, on display in our story. For flailing, forgetful, faithless sinners like us, Christ comes and he rescues us from our own foolishness, our own faithlessness, our own sin.
There at the cross, we see God's promises in action. There, his commitment to us is not just merely rooted in words, but in a shared experience of death and resurrection. There we see his commitment is greater than our weakness. So we combat our propensity to unbelief, not just by remembering God's promises, as great as they are, but by remembering the reality of God's commitment to his promises and his commitment to his people in all of our weakness and frailty and sin, which we see as we look to God's deliverance at the cross, seen in his word, read and preached, seen at the table where his body and blood are shown forth, and our faltering faith is strengthened as we see and as we're reminded that it's true that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Dear God, as we consider this text together, we, Lord, confess that we are, in many ways like Abram, men and women with a faith that falters and wavers. We are a forgetful, Lord, of who you are in our day-to-day realities too many times. And so, Lord, we would pray that you would, um, Lord, keep us from despair when we see our own weakness. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us on guard against that weakness of unbelief. And we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, as we look to Jesus and we hear Jesus' voice in his word, as we see Jesus at the Lord's Supper, that we would be strengthened in faith. And that as we go about our day, Lord, we would be mindful of your promises and your commitment to them, and we would proceed in that confidence. And so, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.